Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Our guest today is David Hawkins. He's the Director of Climate Programs for the National Resources Defense Council. He began his work in public interest law when he graduated from Columbia University Law School in 1970. In 1977, David Hawkins was appointed by President Carter to be an assistant administrator at the Environmental Protection Agency, where he initiated major new programs under the 1977 amendments to the Clean Air Act. With President Reagan's election in 1981, Hawkins returned to NRDC as co-director of the Clean Air Program. In 1990, David Hawkins became the director of NRDC's Air and Energy Program, and in 2000, he became the director of their Climate Center. It is a delight to have him with us. Welcome, David Hawkins. Thank you, Roger. It's great to be here. Listen, um, I want to start at the beginning uh, for our listeners. I, I suspect most have an idea of the answer, but let's begin by just asking, what in the world is climate change? Climate change is uh, what happens if you pump a lot of uh, heat-trapping gas into the atmosphere. Our planet has an atmosphere that um, uh, controls the heat of the planet, by the amount of uh, different kinds of gases in the atmosphere. Sunlight comes into the atmosphere, hits the Earth, and then is uh, uh, reflected back into space. But some of that sunlight energy, when it leaves uh, the surface of the Earth, gets trapped by gases in the atmosphere. And the more that gets trapped, the more the planet heats up. And what's happened is that by burning fossil fuels, we've put more of those heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere, so more heat's being trapped and bounced back to the surface of the Earth, warming up the planet. Why, why is it such a controversial issue, and why is it so hard to detect? Well, you know, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, human beings uh, are, uh, we like to think of ourselves as special, and in many ways we are. But in one very important way, we're like every other animal, and that is uh, we are sensory organisms. We, are, uh, we receive cues based on our senses, what we smell, what we see, what we taste, uh, what we hear. These are things that it's difficult to, uh, to detect with a problem like uh, climate change. Uh, I don't have any difficulty convincing people that diesel bus pollution is a very bad thing. All you have to do is stand. You said bus Bus pollution. pollution. Yeah. All you have to do is stand near a, di a dirty bus right. and you know right. that it's bad right. because right. it's offending all of your senses. Correct. Well, climate change is different because the only way climate change shows itself is through a combination of instrumental readings and a, uh, an impact on the weather. But the weather is something that we know changes. Uh, so how do, you how do you tell what changes in the weather are due to climate change and whether it's truly unusual and what is, uh, what is uh, just a matter of the fact that, that, uh, that the weather changes from, from day to day, week to week, month to month. And that's what makes it 
uh, an area for the climate deniers uh, to manipulate and mislead because they basically cherry-pick pieces of information and try to confuse people into thinking that these changes in the climate that we are seeing are just ordinary, natural, happened before, nothing to worry about, move on. And, uh, and because we don't have our, our eyes, ears, nose, uh, uh, sensory organisms to be able to you know, tell what's truth and, and what's a lie, uh, it's easy for people to get confused. So given that, the, the, that people can't see it, can they see the effects of the climate change? What are the effects and how perceptible, how, how can they be perceived? We absolutely can see the effects of climate change. Uh, more frequent wildfires uh, and more intense and widespread wildfires are an effect of climate change because as, uh, as we have periods of drought, uh, we, we have a much drier forest with a lot of tinder and fuel in it. Uh, the elevated temperatures uh, that, that uh, are, are happening uh, when a fire starts contribute to the extent of the fire and how hard it is to control. So that's an example. Um, torrential downpours that uh, overwhelm our city's uh, flood protection areas. Uh, this, is a, this is another uh, evidence of, of climate change. Um, we have uh, even uh, you know, severe cold spells. Uh, that one is harder to understand as an effect of climate change, especially if the label is global warming. But what happens is the, uh, the jet stream is being disrupted by climate change. Uh, and that's allowing uh, polar uh, air to come further down into, into the United States uh, in unusual, uh, prolonged bursts. Uh, so they're, uh, basically, the, the, the effect of climate change, it's, it's, it's not, uh, a lot of people uh, got confused by the original label, global warming, mm -hmm. because the, the mental image was uh, just going into a room and turning the thermostat up a couple of degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, well, okay, uh, what's so bad about that? But that's really, uh, that's really a misleading uh, understanding. The, the correct understanding is that um, what we're doing is pumping more energy into the climate system. And think of the climate system as a, a Jeep uh, uh, traveling down a not very uh, well-paved road, a dirt road. Um, if that Jeep is, is moving fairly slowly, then you can handle the bumps uh, without hitting the ceiling. But if you pump more energy into that Jeep and you keep on pushing it harder and push the pedal down and you start going over those, those bumps in the road, all of a sudden you're rocketing all over the place. And that's what's happening with the climate system. We're pumping more energy into the system. Uh, wind currents are affected. Uh, precipitation events are, uh, are affected. And uh, we have heat waves that are more prolonged. We have drought spells that are more prolonged. All of the extremes um, are increased. What, does that include the polar melting that seems to be going on? Yes. Uh, we, we have lost about a third of the uh, polar ice uh, uh, over the last, uh, uh, last 40 years. And, um, and that uh, is one of the things that has affected the, uh, the jet stream because the jet stream uh, is, is something that is created by the temperature difference 
between the area around the North Pole and then the lower latitudes, uh, like where the United States is. As the Arctic has warmed due to climate change, that difference in temperature has decreased, and that has weakened the, the jet stream. Uh, so we have, we have the melting of the, of the uh, ice uh, on, uh, in, in the Arctic, um, which doesn't itself contribute to sea level rise because it's already in the water. So think of a glass of water mm-hmm. with an ice cube mm-hmm. in it. When mm-hmm. that ice cube melts, it doesn't raise the mm-hmm. level of water mm-hmm. in, your, in your glass. Uh, but it what is it does counterintuitive. Do, yeah. But what it does do is disrupt these, these uh, uh, patterns like the jet stream that, uh, that we depend on. Now, it's a very different matter uh, when we're talking about the ice in Greenland or the ice in the Ant- Antarct- uh, Antarctica. Those volumes of ice are sitting on land, so they are not at this point affecting the level of the water. But when they melt or when they slide into the ocean— that's when they increase uh, uh, sea level, and they can contribute. Uh, if, if we lost uh, all of the ice in, in Antarctica, and we're not going to lose all of the ice in the foreseeable future, but if we did, uh, we would be talking about a 20-foot rise in sea level, which would inundate all of the major coastal cities of the world. It sure would. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, it's almost counterintuitive that you'd make a distinction between ice on land and ice in the water, mm-hmm. but it, it makes an awful lot of sense once you put it out there. Mm-hmm. David Hawkins, um, how does the uh, destruction of our, the globe's rainforests impact this, this issue of climate change? Yeah, well— Trees are an, an enormous storehouse of uh, of carbon. Uh, what, the, what what trees do uh, when they grow is absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, uh, and through photosynthesis, they turn it into the carbon based structure of the tree itself. So, standing forests uh, absorb and store and lock up a lot of a lot of carbon. When we cut the forest down. Uh, we release all of that carbon. Uh, if we burn the if we burn the wood or if we leave it to rot, uh, it it releases that CO2 back to the atmosphere. And in addition, just the very act of of uh, harvesting a forest uh, is uh, creates a great disturbance to the soils. And the soils have a tremendous amount of carbon in them. And in a healthy forest, that carbon is locked up in the soil. But once you uh, cut down a forest, you, you disturb that soil, and that releases carbon to the atmosphere. The, the problems that you're describing sound not just profound, but, but basically overwhelming. Can climate change be lessened or reversed even? It can. Um, uh, reversing it is a lot more difficult than slowing it down. Uh, the way to slow it down is to shift to cleaner energy. Uh, the biggest contributor to climate change is uh, is fossil fuel carbon uh, dioxide pollution from burning oil, coal, and gas. Uh, these these fossil fuels. Uh, how did they come about? They came about because hundreds of millions of years ago, there was uh, an incredibly flourishing plant life on Earth, and it was drawing uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The atmosphere 
at that time had a lot of carbon dioxide in it. This was the days of uh, great warmth, dinosaurs roaming the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over hundreds of millions of years, those plants drew down the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, stored it in in the plant material, that was then submerged through geological processes uh, so that it became uh, fossil fuels compressed under great pressure uh, and temperature over hundreds of millions of years. So there it was, all of this carbon that used to be in the atmosphere was converted into this isolated warehouse beneath the surface of the earth called fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. But uh, 150 years ago or so, we started uh, digging up coal uh, in 1859, uh, the first uh, commercial oil well uh, hit, uh, hit pay dirt. Uh, and uh, the story since then has been that we've grown our economies uh, based on uh, the use of this stored capital. This is sort natural capital. People argue is, is the basis for the Industrial Revolution. And it, and it was the basis, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to deny that. Uh, we did grow wealthy using fossil fuels. But just because we grew wealthy using fossil fuels doesn't mean that we should keep using them if the, if the costs of using them are to disrupt the, the climate that human civilizations depend on. So can we do that? Is it practical? And the, and the good news is it is practical. Take uh, electricity, for example. Uh, right now, uh, most of our electricity is generated by a combination of coal and natural gas. Mm-hmm. That can change, and it is changing. Uh, wind and solar technologies, the prices have dropped dramatically over the last 20 years. It is now uh, less expensive to uh, purchase a contract for electricity from wind and solar uh, generation than it is from building a new coal plant or building a new gas plant. Uh, so the, these, these, uh, these uh, newer, cleaner, zero carbon electricity resources are available, uh, but they need stronger market signals in order to uh, be able to be um, uh, deployed at the rate we need them to deploy. And the, natu- the, the normal commercial private sector markets are helping, but they're not, they're not strong enough. So we need policy. We need emission performance standards. We need uh, climate change rules that essentially say to electric uh, power companies, you need to supply electricity that has a lower carbon footprint. Many states, including Colorado, have those policies. They are called renewable portfolio standards, and they basically tell electric power companies, you need to supply electricity that's cleaner, that's less polluting, has less carbon in it. And power companies are responding. That creates the market signal. They basically put uh, bids out and say, okay, we want to buy this many gigawatts of, of wind power and this many megawatts of solar power. And companies in the private sector are responding and saying, we'll build you those wind turbines, we will set up those solar uh, panel installations, and we will help you comply with the law, provide uh, electricity without carbon to your customers. It seems to me that the, the price of alternate energy has decreased very, very substantially. I remember when... The payback period was between 30 and 40 years for a resident to put solar panels on his or her home. Mm -hmm. 
today, that's nowhere near the payback period. I think the payback period now is about a third or a quarter of that and decreasing rapidly. Mm-hmm. Why in the world is this administration not fostering policies to push solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, alternate forms of energy that are decentralized, localized, and are controlled at the state, could be easily controlled at the state level? Well, there seem to be a a number of factors. Uh, The first is that uh, the president's campaign depended on a lot of uh, contributions from the incumbent uh, energy producers, the coal, oil, and gas industries. So uh, the administration, uh, at at the direction of the president, is uh, basically doing things to reward those companies that uh, helped him become uh, president. Uh, The second is, I think, that there's a personal, visceral reaction on President Trump's part uh, to any policies that were promoted by the Obama administration. So if the Obama administration promoted a policy, that seems to be reason enough for President Trump to take the opposite uh, stance. Uh, So there's a lot of that going on. Uh, They're working very hard to undo a lot of the progress that was made just not just under President Obama, but under President uh, uh, George H.W. Bush and even under George W. Bush. Uh, They are working very hard to try to roll that back. The good news is we don't think they're going to succeed in rolling it back. Um, We uh, at NRDC and many, uh, many state and uh, local governments, many other environmental organizations, we are working very hard to challenge all of these illegal actions in court. And, And we are succeeding and we think we will continue to succeed and prevent them from rolling back these important policies. We, we will have a harder time preventing them from just delaying action. And that, that's going to be the cost of the Trump administration on the, on the environment, is that there are going to be several years where we make no progress, and that is a huge loss. I want to move back to a question I asked earlier and, and find out about some additional options for slowing or reversing um, the, the uh climate change problems we're facing. You've spoken eloquently about converting from carbon fuels to alternate energy sources to generate electricity and power. What other things can be done? What can be done, for example, about cars and gasoline? And Mm -hmm. what can be done? What other things can be done that would lead, and policies created, that would lead to the market entering into Mm -hmm. climate change reduction practices. So uh, step one is energy efficiency. Uh, Making our cars, our buildings, our appliances as efficient in their use of energy as possible. Uh, because uh, the cleanest form of energy uh, is the energy that you don't use. Uh, And this is not about deprivation. This is about avoiding the sloppy use of energy by by having smarter technologies. And we've been doing that with cars uh, for uh, several decades now. Uh, We've 
been doing it at a slower rate than we than we should have, but we have been making cars more efficient. We've also made appliances more efficient. Uh, the re- the refrigerator that you buy today uses about one quarter of the electricity that a refrigerator that was sold in the mid 1970s used, and it is no it is less expensive to operate. It is no more expensive to purchase. It actually has more interior volume. Um, uh, due to just uh, smarter, smarter insulation materials. So we know how to do energy efficiency. We just have to do more of it and do it faster. The second big step, as I mentioned, is making electricity clean, mm-hmm. having zero carbon resources to make electricity. The third step, and this is one that helps a lot more with automobiles, is to electrify automobiles. Um, Electric vehicles are making great progress, uh, faster than some expected. The technology is going to continue to improve. Uh, The range of electric cars is improving uh, so that uh, you don't have to worry about uh, running out of of energy, running out of electricity to get to where you want to go. There will be networks of chargers. Those chargers will be faster. Um, and this will become a real viable uh, option for more and more people to have uh, electric vehicles. Uh, research is continuing on alternative fuels uh, to run vehicles. Um, some of those uh, alternatives are, are um, of questionable climate value. Uh, the ethanol that we add to gasoline in, in moderate amounts today uh, is not much of a winner environmentally uh, just because the, uh, the practices used to, uh, to raise the crops are, are not all that environmentally friendly. And the energy that's used to grow the crops and transport the crops and process the crops into uh, ethanol are still uh, car- high-carbon uh, energy processes. But uh, there is reason to believe that we can find advanced technologies that will uh, use biomass uh, to produce liquid fuels. We have to be careful about that because uh, you know, there's, a, there's a danger that a biomass economy will simply uh, turn to the forests and say, well, let's cut all those trees down and turn them into energy, and let's replace the trees with faster-growing crops that we can turn into uh, synthetic gasoline faster. So uh, if we're going to pursue this, uh, we have to be careful and make sure that uh, there are rules of the road that are strong enough so that we don't have those kinds of abuses. You've been talking a little bit about advances in technology, and I am interested in uh, pursuing that in a slightly different way than you, you formulated it. And that is, given the very, very rapid development of new technologies in many areas and the dissemination of those new technologies into areas that never had them before, mm-hmm. What effect do you see that having so that if you have, for example, a cell phone in a village in, in um, north, northern South Africa uh, that was formerly predominantly illiterate and now they have computers and telephones and so on, how does all of that have an impact on the, the problems that we face with climate change? Well, uh, first of all, communications can become a substitute for travel. 
uh, and those of us uh, in, in the United States uh, uh, use that quite a bit. In, uh, at NRDC, we have uh, five offices uh, in the United States, uh, uh, you know, several on the East Coast, several on the West Coast, and uh, one in Chicago in the middle. And uh, we used to have to uh, get on a plane or a train in mm-hmm. order to, to meet together. Uh, and now we uh, rarely do that. We have video conferencing facilities that have gotten better and better. Um, and we use those inst- instead of, uh, inst- inst- instead of uh, having to travel. Uh, and uh, many, more, um, many more people have uh, work lifestyles now where they use telecommunications mm-hmm. uh, as a substitute. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's a way of avoiding all of that energy use and all that carbon pollution associated with, uh, with uh, having to travel. So that works in the developing world. What about in the developing world? Yeah, well, as, as, soon, as, a, as soon as a country uh, has uh, you know, a good internet system um, uh, then, uh, and, and a cellular communication system, um, it is capable of having those kinds of uh, systems as well. And it's actually easier to, to build those, uh, those kinds of uh, 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 infrastructure uh, uh, components than it is to build roads through mm-hmm. sometimes very mm-hmm. difficult terrain and to reach isolated places. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a way to leapfrog uh, some of the uh, isolation and remoteness uh, of, of uh, th- those places. Uh, similarly, with, uh, with electricity supply, um, locally based uh, renewables uh, uh, electricity uh, uh, projects are ways to avoid having to build massive transmission systems uh, from uh, power stations that are located very far away. Uh, so these are these are options that are available to uh, developing countries. David Hawkins, um, climate director for the National Defense Resource Council. It's uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you. Yes, I am so sorry. Thank you. Yeah, and one of the oldest and most important of the environmental organizations, I might add. Um, I I I know you have offices in Beijing. And that makes me want to take the question I asked a moment ago to, to a, a slightly different level. Mm-hmm. What is happening in uh, Russia, in Brazil, in China, in India, all of which are rapidly developing countries, in regard to their development in relationship to climate change and we only have a couple of minutes in which you can answer that but I, I I know it's a big question but what 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 is being done well let's take China uh, uh, the Chinese leadership we are convinced uh, regards climate change as a serious problem uh, the potential impacts on Chinese agriculture of, from climate change are very large and uh, the the Chinese leadership, actually sees that as potentially destabilizing their regime. Uh, they are, uh, and, and consequently, they have taken action 
to build up a wind industry and to build up a solar power industry. Uh, they have started to close down inefficient coal mines. Uh, they have slowed the pace of approving new coal-fired power plants. Um, they shouldn't be building any more coal-fired power plants, so I can't regard their current policy as a, as a complete success. They haven't finished the job. But they are serious about it. Uh, Brazil is also uh, a, a country that is taking this issue seriously. Uh, India is, um, is recognizing the challenge. They are putting economic development uh, first, but they are recognizing that they need to do something about climate change. And solar power installations in, in India are actually now uh, competing with new coal-fired power plants. So that's important. Russia is kind of a question mark. David Hawkins, on that question mark, we're going to have to end. I am so happy that you joined us on Outside In today and shared your knowledge and, more importantly, your wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. It's been great to talk with you. You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT, hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.